This is exactly right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This story contains adult content and language along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. It took more than two decades for this police officer who committed a cold-blooded, off-duty murder, crime of passion, to be arrested. And even after the arrest was made, the family sought answers about why it took so long and, and made accusations of a cover-up. And those questions were covered up by the police department. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Journalist Matthew McGough has worked for years on his true crime book, The Lazarus Files. It's a very twisty case about an LAPD police officer who got away with murder for more than 20 years. It turns out that McGough had actually interviewed Detective Stephanie Lazarus for a story about art theft. And then something odd happened at McGough's other job as a writer for the TV show Law & Order. I went into work at Law and & Order and people were throwing around ideas for the new season of episodes and someone mentioned that coming into work that morning, they'd heard on the radio that a LAPD officer had been arrested for a cold case murder. And my boss kind of dismissed the idea as, oh, you know, we've done that on the show before. And then he said, but it was a female police officer. And again, it was like, yeah, we, we did that in season 13 or 14 or whatever. And then he said she worked in art theft. Wow. And that's when I kind of almost fell off my chair. And I was trying to place the name of this woman that I had sat down with a year earlier because I remembered she had a very distinctive name. And then it came to me and I said, was it Stephanie Lazarus? And my colleague who'd heard the report on public radio was like, yeah, that's her name. And... Then they were like, your friend got arrested for murder. And I was like, no, no, she's <laughs> she's not my friend. She's a police detective. And I interviewed her a year ago. I really wanted to know what the true story was, starting with, did this police officer who was very cordial actually commit 
this murder that she was accused of. It was a brutal crime of passion, cold-blooded killing, not an on-duty kind of thing. Let's start from the beginning. So this is 1986, Southern California, right? And let's start from the beginning of who the victim is. Sherry Rasmussen, who's the victim in this case, very extraordinary young woman. She was in her 20s. I think she may have been 29 when she was murdered. She was a hospital nurse, but really precocious and incredibly successful for her age. She was the director of critical care nursing at Glendale Adventist Hospital here in Los Angeles. And the position and responsibility she had would have typically been handled by someone who was many, many years older than her. And it was sort of a trend throughout Sherry's life. She skipped two grades in school. She began college when she was 16 years old. She had her master's degree in nursing from UCLA when she was just barely in her 20s. She was very vivacious, attractive woman, sort of had it all in terms of professionally, just kind of tall and lanky, kind of like a Princess Diana type look, Mm -hmm. but very, very high achieving, very selfless, very dedicated to her career and transforming nursing. She lectured internationally at various conferences. Really one of the tragedies of what happened is we'll never know how much more she may have accomplished over the course of the rest of her life. But even in her 29 years, she made a tremendous impact And the biggest thing that had happened in her life prior to her murder was that she had just gotten married three months before she was killed. She married a guy named John Rudden, and they had just embarked on their life together. Tell me about that day, February 24th, 1986. February 24, 1986 was the date that Sherry was killed, and it was a weekday. She was supposed to work, but decided not to go into work that morning, called in sick. So she wasn't really expecting to be at home that day. She should have been in the office and just made a decision when she woke up that she wasn't going to go into work. So her husband, John, left her in bed when he went to work shortly after 7 a.m. that morning. And when John returned home at 6 p.m., the first thing he noticed was that the garage door to their condo was open and Sherry's car was missing. And their condo was part of a complex in Van Nuys. All the condos had the same architectural layout. It was like a split level where the garage was on the ground level. And then above that is the living room. And then above that is a level that has the dining room and the kitchen. And then the bedrooms are on the top. It's sort of a vertically oriented townhouse style. So when he pulled into the garage, it it was open and he noticed that there was broken glass that was on the pavement in front of the garage. And he wasn't sure what was wrong. When he went up the stairs from the garage into the living room, he saw that the door between the living room and the garage was open. And when he went inside, he discovered Sherry's body on the floor of the living room. There had been a very significant struggle. She had a lot of injuries, bruises, and she had also been shot three times in the chest. So beaten to death and shot both. Yeah, the crime scene and the evidence extended from the second floor of the condo, so the kitchen area, down into the first floor. And there was quite a bit of blood evidence that was around, and Sherry was lying on her back in the living room. Aside from the car, is there anything else that's missing? Eventually, it's determined that their marriage license was missing. Wow, okay. But not very much else. There was a purse. Sherry's purse was taken, but it was recovered later that day. 
And there was some stereo equipment that had been removed from an entertainment center. This is 1986, so it's kind of like big, bulky, flat screen TVs and things like that. Mm -hmm. Big piece of furniture that holds TV and a video disc player and a cassette recorder, whatever hi-fi audio would have been in 1986. Some of those items had been yanked out of the entertainment center and stacked by the front door of the condo left there. I think John was devastated to find his wife and managed to call 911 and the police showed up and they were the ones who initiated the investigation. And it does seem that beginning that night, their first impression of what happened was that it was a botched robbery. And the police theory from the very beginning that they hewed to for the next 20-some years was that Sherry had interrupted a burglary. Again, this happened during the day on a weekday when most people would be expected to be at work. So the police theory of the crime was that a burglar or more than one burglar had entered the condo believing no one was spare. Sherry had surprised them or confronted them and there was an altercation and it escalated and ultimately she was killed. At first glance, it looked like a Bosch robbery, but nothing of value really except for the car was taken from the condo. So that doesn't really mesh with a burglary or robbery motive because there was jewelry and other items that were left undisturbed that had value. Also, most burglars, if confronted, would want to get away. Like their first impulse would be to flee. Right. Not to fight. Not a confrontation. Or, or to commit a murder. Right. And also the severity of the injury she suffered, the intensity of the hand-to-hand. She was really fighting for her life for a long time, like 30 minutes or more based on how much ground within the condo was covered and the blood that was in different places around the condo. And so the intensity of the fight suggests pretty strongly a personal motive as opposed to a stranger, a burglar. They're looking for low-hanging fruit in terms of what place is going to be easy to burglarize, take some property, fence the property, move on to the next place. So let me ask you a series of questions that can result in short answers from you. What kind of gun? Okay, so let's talk about the gun. So Sherry was shot three times. Mm. There were a couple of slugs that were recovered from the crime scene. And from those bullets and ballistic testing, they were able to determine that Sherry was shot with a 38 caliber gun. This was a two-inch 38 caliber revolver, which was a very, very common backup weapon that LAPD officers would use. We know that there were shots that were fired both upstairs in the second floor of the condo because the glass that I mentioned that was on the ground when John Rudden came home That was actually glass from a balcony door. There was a little overhang, a small little balcony, big enough for a barbecue grill. Okay. That was off the kitchen, directly over the garage door. And that's where the confrontation began. And at least one shot was fired and it went through the glass window and shattered glass fell down on the pavement in front of the garage door. All right, so let's get some background real quick because we've talked about Sherry and John and they got married. What is John's overall demeanor and situation in life before all of this happens? John's a handsome, tall guy, but did not have a ton of girlfriends. He grew up in San Diego 
And he attended UCLA. And while he was attending UCLA, he became friends, more than friends, with a woman named Stephanie Lazarus, who was a year behind him at UCLA. And they sort of had an ambiguous relationship. And among their friends at UCLA, it was sort of widely known that Stephanie pined for John, really, really wanted to be his girlfriend. And John did not they were friends, close friends, met each other's families, spent a lot, a lot of time together, but he did not want to be Stephanie's boyfriend, although they did hook up and have sex and... Mixed signals. <laughs> yeah, their relationship was very ambiguous and kind of unequal in terms of ardor. Okay, Stephanie really wanted to be with John and felt like he was the one. She was not dating anyone else or apparently interested in any anyone else. And they would be together and then they would take time off, but they would always sort of drift back together again. That was the pattern of John and Stephanie's relationship from college and in the years after college. How many years are we talking about between when they met at UCLA and the time when he is married? Let's start there. Yeah, several years. And I think the dynamic was such that they would drift back together and then I think John would maybe feel some remorse or it would be too intense and then they would have some time apart. But they were friends also. And so again, they would sort of drift back together. And I think John maybe dated a couple of other women in those other periods, but there's no indication that Stephanie did. She was very much set on John as being the one who she wanted to be with. And she would confide to some friends about difficulties in the relationship with John that he didn't feel as strongly for her as she did for him. And then he meets Sherry. He falls head over heels in love with Sherry. And this happens quickly, right? Doesn't this happen pretty swiftly? Yeah, I think from the time that John met Sherry until the time that they're engaged is maybe about one year. Okay. But yeah, John's feelings for Sherry are sort of what Stephanie had wanted for herself. He's just head over heels in love with her. They met sometime in, I think, 1984, and they're immediately a couple. So in this time period, this one year from meeting until proposal and marriage and all of that, is he in contact with Stephanie as anything more than just friends at this point? Yeah. Now, this information is a bit fragmentary because it comes from a couple of different sources. One, it's John. The story that he tells in all of these interviews is not consistent. It evolves over time. Yeah. In his earliest interviews, there's no relationship with Stephanie. 20-some hmm. years later, he admits having sex with Stephanie during his engagement with Sherry. And even after Sherry's murder, he had sex with Stephanie. So it's hard to pin down exactly during the time that John and, and Sherry were falling in love and becoming a couple. We know that Stephanie learned of John's engagement to Sherry and called him very upset yeah. and asked to see him. And John did go to see Stephanie and they ended up having sex that night. And then we also know that subsequent to that, Stephanie went to Sherry's workplace, the hospital where she worked, and told her that she had had sex with John recently Ugh. and said that something along the lines of, when this marriage ends, I'm going to be there to pick up the pieces. 
Did she tell people? Did she tell her parents or her friends about this encounter? Sherry was very private. And part of what was so difficult for her was that she loved John and she wanted her relationship with John to endure. Yeah. And she was in a marriage and she wanted to be married to John. And so even as these things are happening, there's a degree to which she's protecting her husband. Yeah. So she told her parents and she told friends that Stephanie came to the hospital and threatened her. But she stopped short of telling them that her fiancé, who she intended to marry, had cheated on her during the engagement. Yeah. She, she did not divulge that to her parents, which is understandable to a degree because yeah. it wasn't like she called the marriage off. John never told Sherry that he had had sex with Stephanie. Stephanie went to the hospital and told Sherry that. And then she came home that night very upset and said, John, is this true? And he said, yes, it is true. And I'm so sorry. And please don't call this off. And I was in over my head and I didn't know what else to do. And it was the last time and I won't have contact with her anymore. And Sherry forgave him. So from that perspective, she was ready to move on. But she was confiding in her parents and several friends, more than one, that there was this woman who was a LAPD officer. There were times that Sherry felt like she was being followed. So clearly it's stalking behavior, but there wasn't really a name for it. So there were a lot of incidents in the months leading up to the murder that were very concerning to Sherry. And throughout that time, John was giving Sherry reassurance it's over. I'm not going to talk to her anymore. It seemed like Sherry wanted John to be more definitive in terms of telling Stephanie, you're not welcome at our house. Don't come to our house anymore. I'm not going to be with you. I've moved on. Don't bother my wife. Don't go to my wife's workplace. Like there's various ways to put your foot down and just say, hey, it's over between us. Back off, yeah. Let me live my life and you live your life and stop doing what you're doing. John, for whatever reasons within himself and his personality, again, Sherry's father didn't love John, didn't respect him so much. He felt like John sort of had a weak personality. Yeah. Not standing up for himself or not definitive, wishy-washy. Or narcissistic. I mean, this is very narcissistic behavior. You can take it that way too. He wants the attention. He's got this beautiful woman. He's got a beautiful wife and a beautiful woman pining for him. Again, I think what Sherry was wanted and was asking for from him was, was a definitive, clear break. And John's attitude was... I'm not going to contact her. It would only make things worse for me to confront her. Yeah. So that never happened. And then again, things continued. So John knew a lot about this history and Sherry's family and friends knew a lot about this history. And then the murder happens three months after they're married. So we're back at February 24th, 1986 in the house, and it looks on the surface to be a botched robbery, but anybody who's really going to take a closer look and start talking to people in her family and in her immediate circle is going to find out that she's being stalked and that her husband has had an on-again, off-again relationship with a woman who seems really unstable because she has been confronting her former lover's wife. So 
At this point, enter the detective, who I think is at the center of your story. Tell me a little bit about this man who walks in and surveys the scene and comes up with a botched robbery and essentially shuts down all other motives or other suspects. So Sherry was killed in the Van Nuys section of Los Angeles, which is in the San Fernando Valley. So it's within the jurisdiction of the LAPD and more specifically the Van Nuys Division of the LAPD. So there's a small homicide unit. It's not a particularly high crime area of LA compared to many other areas of the city in the 80s. And the case is assigned to a detective whose name is Lyle Mayer, who's a veteran detective. He'd been an LAPD officer since going back to the mid to late 1960s and had had many years of experience working homicide. And he shows up at the crime scene and walks the crime scene and then interviews John, the victim's husband. And that interview was tape recorded and I obtained a copy of the tape recording so I know what was said that night. And at the end of the interview, Mayer asked John point blank, was there an ex-girlfriend, ex-boyfriend, anything like that? And John says no. He answers no that night. So subsequent to asking questions, just basic background about what was your job? What was her job? How long were you married? He basically tells John, here's what I think happened. Basically gives voice to this burglary theory. So that's also how we know that it was was that quick that night that they settled on this theory. Do you think that if John had said, yes, I've been having on-again, off-again sex with a woman, she's an LAPD detective, that this would have changed Detective Mayer's mind about the botched robbery at all? Well, to answer that question, we have to talk about what happens the next day. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, so botched robbery is what he says. Again, there's a lot of blame to go around for how this went the way that it did. And some of it lies at John Rudden's feet, no doubt, because he had an opportunity. He knew a lot more than what he divulged to the the cops. And he was asked point blank the night of the murder, is there an ex-girlfriend? Is there an ex-boyfriend? And he said no. And also part of what's going on in this story is there's like an estrangement between John's family and Sherry's family. Hmm. So it's not totally uncommon in in marriages, but the two dads did not see eye to eye politically. And so there was some tension through the engagement and stuff like that. The dads would argue and talk politics. And Nels Rasmussen, Sherry's father, didn't fully respect John, thought he was sort of wishy-washy. And on the night of the murder, John came home and found Sherry and he called 911. And then he called his own parents, his mom and dad, and told them what had happened. And they got in their car and drove up from San Diego. John did not call Sherry's parents. Oh, no. Did he let the police call them? No one called them until almost midnight. So about 
five to six hours after John discovered Sherry's body, the Rasmussens get a call at their home, and it's John's father Hmm. who breaks the news to the Rasmussens that Sherry has been murdered. And Nels, Sherry's father, asks to speak to John. He says to John's dad, put John on the phone, and John won't come to the phone. Hmm. And because of that delay... It was too late in the evening for the Rasmussens to get a flight to Los Angeles. If they had been told at 6 p.m. or something, they probably could have gotten on a plane. But with that delay, they had to wait until the following morning to take the first available flight to L.A. So what I described in terms of John's first interview with the police, the initial police walkthrough of the condo, and even a second walkthrough of the condo Saturday morning, all of that happens before Sherry's parents are on the ground in LA. Wow. And so it's during that second day morning walkthrough, it's John and his mother and Detective Mayer and a second younger detective who was sort of assisting Mayer. They're walking through the condo and the body has been removed by the coroner the night before. But again, there's a lot of blood that's still on the carpet and it's undoubtedly very disturbing for John to walk through what had been his home. He never spent another night there in the condo. But the detectives mentioned to him that Sherry was bitten on the arm, Mm. which was because her other injuries were so severe, John had not even noticed that the night before. And the second detective, his name is Steve Hooks, who was assisting mayor, said women bite. Something along the lines of men don't bite, women bite. And John, at that point, says, there's this woman, this friend of mine, Stephanie Lazarus, and she's an LAPD officer, and you guys should talk to her. So John, it's belated, but the day after the murder, he does provide the detectives with the full name and that she's an LAPD officer. And he does that in front of his mom and the other detective, and there's no record of that. But John testified to that under oath. And Lyle Mayer, when I interviewed him, conceded that John did mention that the day after the murder. So John finally says, you should talk to Stephanie Lazarus. She's a police officer. Does Mayer talk to her? Open question. There's no record that he ever spoke to her. I'm surprised that he doesn't focus in on John a little bit more too. I mean, as the husband, he really is honed in on the botched robbery. What do you think it was that flipped a switch for him that made him ignore everything else? Even the husband, even ignoring John. This is part of what was so, so disturbing about how the LAPD handled things after Stephanie was arrested and, and even convicted. It's pretty important to figure out what exactly went wrong. But the LAPD essentially did the exact same thing that they did in 1986, which was like fingers and ears and basically saying, we're not going to go there. We're not going to look at that. Which to me, the futility of that is it just extends the story. And if there's nothing to hide, then there should be nothing to fear from an investigation. And you do a thorough investigation and you put it to bed. Again, it's not Lyle Mayer's fault that Stephanie Lazarus committed a murder. Right. People of all walks of life commit crimes. It doesn't matter what your profession or your social class or your upbringing is, things happen. So if Lyle Mayer wanted to protect his reputation or if the LAPD wanted to protect their reputation, the best thing that they could have done and should have done is just investigate it. Just look at her. If you don't think that she did it, fine. 
Dozens of times the Rasmussens contacted the police. They wrote to America's Most Wanted and A Current Affair and tried. They did everything in their power to get the police to look at this female police officer. So again, at some point, it's like, is this an oversight or is this a police culture thing where it's power and control Yeah, and it's we're not going in that direction, no matter what you say. And I don't think it's motivated by any personal fondness for Stephanie or anything. I think it's just police culture. Closing ranks. Closing ranks, circling the wagons. We're not going there. Yeah, Let's leave 1986. And we've left it with Detective Mayer saying Bosch robbery. And of course, we've not found the robbers, but we'll be on the lookout. We've got Stephanie, who eventually gets promoted from being a police officer to being a detective. Yeah, she became a detective and she worked in internal affairs. And then she worked as the detective at Van Nuys, where this murder occurred and was an open case at that time. And there's documentation from the case file that's missing. We don't know how it went missing, when it went missing, but we do know that Stephanie worked in Van Nuys for several years during the 1990s and had unfettered access to the murder book. So she logged a lot of years as a detective, but there's no commendations in her record at all for running into gunfire, solving a murder case. Okay, so John moves on. I assume he's going to get married and maybe have kids at some point. John moves on. At some point in the early 90s, he reconnects with Stephanie and they have sex once or twice, he said, on the witness stand. And then shortly after that, he meets a woman who he marries and has kids with. And Stephanie, teaching a dare class actually in Oregon, meets a young Oregon police officer who she ends up moving down to LA and and they marry and end up adopting a daughter several years after they get married. So how do we get then from 1986 to 2012? And I will give people a hint. It has something to do with that infamous bite mark that police found on Sherry's body. In 1986, when this murder happened, there was no such thing as DNA analysis. First ever forensic use of DNA to solve a murder case was not until the following year, 1987. And then it was a couple years after that, that it came to the United States. And then O.J. Simpson obviously made DNA a household word. And in the early 2000s, the LAPD established a cold case homicide unit that was intended to go back and look at unsolved cases and leverage some of these forensic advances like DNA analysis, fingerprint computers, ballistics databases, things like that that did not exist previously and and try to solve these old cases. So the night of the murder at the crime scene, there was a conscientious criminalist, someone who worked for the coroner's office, who took a bite mark swab of the wound that was on Sherry's arm. It was a deep, pretty severe bite mark. Teeth marks were visible and... That bite mark swab was stored at the coroner's office, sat in a freezer for the next 20-some years, undisturbed. When DNA evidence was first becoming better known, like pre-OJ, the years before OJ, Nels requested a meeting with the LAPD. Lyle Mayer, the original detective, had retired, but the case had been handed off to another detective, and they offered to pay for DNA evidence. The Rasmussen's did on the saliva that was found on her arm in the bite mark. Yeah, I read an article about this new thing called DNA. Right. And have you guys considered doing DNA? And the detective told them first, 
well, it's very expensive. And I don't know that we have it in the budget to do that. And Nell said, I'll pay for it. Whatever it costs, I'll pay for it. And then the detective responded, well, you have to have someone to compare it to. And we don't have a suspect in this case. We haven't found a burglar who committed it. And Nels was, (laughs) well, actually, there is a suspect. This female police officer who I've mentioned dozens of times. And terribly, shortly after that, conversation when the Rasmussen's offered to pay for DNA evidence, a Van Nuys homicide detective went to the coroner's office and checked out all of the evidence that had been collected at the crime scene on the night of the murder. And all of that evidence went missing with the exception of one piece of evidence, the bite mark swab, Hmm. which because it was biological evidence. It was stored separately. So bite mark swabs were stored in a freezer, whereas the other evidence that was collected that night, which would have been things like fibers and hairs that were collected off of Sherry's body that very well may have incriminated Stephanie, went missing in 1993, checked out by a Van Nuys homicide detective. He signed out for it. He later, after Stephanie was arrested, he was confronted and he conceded that it was his signature, but said that he had no recollection of checking it out, that he never worked the case. (laughs) And again, that's sort of the limit of the information that's available. Like, how do I drill down further beyond that? Everybody's unreliable. John's unreliable, right? And you're talking about a bureaucracy. A bureaucracy is all about passing the buck and, and no one being ultimately responsible. So you asked about the bite mark swab. Miraculously, it was the one thing that did not disappear. Amazing. was evidence that the coroner had, had collected. And in 2001, the LAPD founded a cold case unit and they started combing through, I think it was 9,000 unsolved murders that had been committed in LA between 1960-something and the late 90s. And what those detectives, when they were screening those cases, were looking for was basically low-hanging fruit, cases that have some sort of biological evidence, something that's suitable for DNA testing. So a drive-by shooting is not a good candidate for... DNA analysis. Right. However, a burglary murder in an indoor crime scene with evidence that's been collected and a bite mark swab and a lot of blood evidence at the crime scene, samples of which were taken, is a very promising candidate for reinvestigation. So Sherry's case was flagged in 2003 and a request was made for DNA analysis to be done on evidence in that case. They run the DNA and it's One of the heroes in the story is a criminalist at the LAPD crime lab. Now we're in the 2000s. Her name is Jennifer Francis. Ironically, this is the first case she ever did DNA testing for. She had just been certified as a DNA analyst and she tracked down the bite mark swab, which was in the coroner's basement freezer for 20 some years. And she tested it and she determined that it was a mix of two women's DNA. You can tell from DNA analysis, whether it's X chromosome, Y chromosome, whether it's a male or a female donor. And she expected to find female DNA because Sherry was a woman and some of her skin cells and the skin was broken, there would be blood in her DNA. But she was shocked to find a second DNA profile and that it was another woman. And again, it shouts out that this is something with a personal motive, not a burglary. 
how many female armed burglars are there running around Van Nuys in 1986? Not very many. And the detective in the cold case unit who was assigned the case was a guy named Cliff Shepard, kind of an old-time veteran detective, I think a similar personality type to Lyle Mayer in terms of not very collaborative with other detectives, old-school attitude, like to do things his way, would get angry when challenged, and Jennifer had access to some of the documentation from the case file. So she saw, this is two women. This is Sherry and another woman. And from the case file, she read that Sherry had disciplined another nurse at the hospital where she worked before the murder. And that this woman had made obscene phone calls to Sherry. That was documented in the records. So Jennifer reading, she's not a detective. She works in the crime lab. She's a civilian. She, working her first ever homicide case, is like, oh my God, I just solved this murder. The nurse did it. Hmm. There's a woman who had a beef with the victim, made obscene phone calls to her, and there's a bite mark, and it's a woman who bit her. So she types up her analysis report, which is just the science, not her theory that the nurse did it. Just the bare bones. This is a female DNA profile with these characteristics and a second DNA profile, also female with these characteristics. And she sent it off to Shepard, expecting the case is going to get solved in no time. Nothing happens. Eventually, Jennifer follows up and calls Shepard and says, what's going on with Rasmussen? And... Shepard tells her that he's looking at male-female burglary teams from the 1980s who may have been active in the Valley. And Jennifer, thinking of the nurse, says to Shepard, what about the other woman? The nurse is who she's thinking of. Shepard replies to her, you mean the police officer ex-girlfriend? She had nothing to do with this. Interesting. Jennifer says, what police officer ex-girlfriend? Because there's nothing in the murder book about that. So Jennifer didn't see that. How does Shepard even know about that when there's nothing documented about a police officer ex-girlfriend? And at that point, things sort of go negative for Jennifer. She ends up being retaliated against Hmm. and could be a story for another interview. But I'll just say that for me, what I learned, Jennifer's one of the primary reasons that this injustice was turned around and one of the major heroes in the story. And it was, she has that conversation with Shepard in 2005 and the case gets transferred out of the cold case unit, back to Van Nuys, which is the same unit that the case started with. Mm -hmm. But obviously, different detectives. We're now in 2009, not 1986. And there's a detective named James Nuttall who comes in one morning and opens up the case, opens the murder book. He reads through it, burglary, so on and so forth. And then he sees Jennifer's four-year-old DNA report that says a female suspect. And his immediate thought is... This isn't a burglary. And within a matter of days, he calls Sherry's parents and asks them, hey, I'm just going over this case and it came back to me and we're just doing our due diligence. And let me ask you, you know, were there any women who may have had a motive to harm Sherry? And mom and dad say, yes, yes. And here's her phone number. (laughs) Well, 
the one piece that they didn't have that John had was was her name. Oh, wow. Sherry never told her parents Stephanie Lazarus's name. So that was the one piece that they were never able to provide themselves. But we know that John provided it to the police. And it's so interesting because, of course, there's no cell phones in 86. So there's no way for them to really be able to track phone calls and reference back. No. And 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 John really went into a shell after the murder. And so, again, there's a world in which if John and the Rasmussen's had shared information and had teamed up and put pressure on the LAPD together, maybe things would have gone a different way. But the way that they did go was John wanted to believe the police were telling him this was a burglary. And again, it just goes to the psychological dimensions of it's the same thing with Lyle Mayer and Cliff Shepard in 2005. No one wants to believe that this is true. No one wants to believe that a police officer would be capable of committing a murder like this and going into work the next day. A female police officer. I think is the, that's the key, is the female police officer part of this. As an investigator, you have to check it out either way. Right. That's the thing. All you have to do is check it out. If you don't check it out, that's... <laughs> the problem. So they find her, they get her DNA sample, they compare it. And it's a match. Yeah, well, there's there's steps along the way where, again, they don't want to believe it. What those detectives, when they reopened it, what they're trying to do is eliminate her as a suspect. Hmm. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, yeah, there's just no way. There's just no way that this woman, they looked her up in group mail or whatever, they could see she's still here. Her husband was assigned to the Van Nuys division. These guys are investigating this and they also had to make a decision because the LAPD and a lot of police departments, the policy is if you become aware of misconduct or potential misconduct, you have to report it up the chain of command. So either to your boss or to internal affairs, if you become aware of any misconduct, you have to report it. That's what the policy is. Okay, so finding out a police officer may have committed a murder 20-some years ago, I'm pretty sure that's misconduct. But these guys knew that she was still an active police officer and they didn't know who she was friends with and how it might get back to her that they were reinvestigating this case and looking at her. So they had to make a decision. You know what? We're not going to put it up the chain of command just yet. Hmm. We're going to investigate this thing in secret, just the four of us. We're going to swear each other to secrecy. We're not going to tell our spouses. We're not going to tell anyone what we're up to until we either eliminate her as a suspect or, God forbid, incriminate her. And the problem that they ran into is they just were not able to eliminate her. Every time hmm. they dug deeper, so they found out, oh, she reported her gun stolen three <laughs> three weeks after the murder. Yeah. This is not looking good. So it led up to them eventually they told their lieutenant who told the chief of police and a surveillance team was put on Stephanie and they collected her DNA sample and it was compared to the bite mark and it was a match. Okay. And she goes on trial and is convicted, I'm assuming. Three years after she was arrested, yeah, she went on trial and was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to, I think, 25 or 27 to life. 
Does she confess ever or does she say anything? No. No, she denies it? She never took the witness stand. I wrote to her several times requesting an interview. I had interviewed her. Remember how this all started? Like I interviewed her before she was arrested. She's never responded. She did not testify at the trial. She did not make a statement before her sentencing. She's never expressed remorse. She's never confessed. The last time that she spoke publicly, or not even publicly, you know, she was interviewed right before she was arrested. They confronted her with the DNA results. Does John, Sherry's husband, ever show any kind of regret or remorse? He does. And I want to be fair to John. He did make a statement where he took responsibility to a degree for what had happened. And he did express something along the lines of the fact that if Sherry had not met him, that she would still be alive today. But to me, what's troubling about John is how he hurt his own credibility by letting the truth out so incrementally over time and not understanding that if you just put it all out there on the table to begin with, it protects you. It just looks terrible when you're telling different versions of the story. And with each subsequent version, you're admitting to more contact with Stephanie. And I can understand to a degree why you would not want to come out with that. Your wife is murdered. You were unfaithful to her. When are, exactly are you going to put that out before the funeral? Right. But at the same time, you have to. Yeah. It doesn't help to bottle it up and let it out in pieces later. So he valued himself more than he valued his wife is really what it comes down to, to me. Well, he's talked in his interviews about nothing's going to bring Sherry back, that it's just moving on and just trying to move on and that nothing that he can do is going to undo what happened before. And so I do think there's like a certain circling of the wagons that happens within his family and protecting John. And he does project a feeling he's very wounded. He wears it on his sleeve and it's like a protective thing because if someone is so bereft, are you going to press that person? Are you going to worsen their emotional discomfort by accusing them of lying or something? Like, no, like, but he uses that as sort of a, a shield against scrutiny or further questions. Like, he knew Stephanie's name. The Rasmussen's did not. They asked him, what is the name of your ex-girlfriend? John would not tell them. And then when they would go to his parents or someone else and say, we need John to cooperate, their response was, can't you see John is devastated? Yeah. Why are you beating up on John? Can't you see that he is a victim here as well? Yeah. I have zero sympathy for that guy. Like zero. <laughs> Less than zero. It's disgusting. What is the takeaway that you have from this story? That the police have a long way to go to changing their culture. This is a murder committed by a police officer and very credible accusations of a long-running cover-up of a murder committed by a police officer with multiple police officers for many years looking the other way. That is something that warrants an investigation. The LAPD did not do an investigation. I'm going to the people who are as high as you can go within the hierarchy, and what are they doing? They're doing exactly what Lyle Mayer did in 1986 and exactly what Cliff Shepard did in 2005 
its fingers in the ears and hoping that this is going to go away or not my problem or someone else will deal with it or whatever the excuse or the rationalization is. But it's unacceptable. It's galling. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Deborah Blum on the efficiency of poisons as murder weapons. To be a poisoner, you have to plan ahead. You can't be an impulse poisoner. You can't say, I'm super mad at you or I really want your fortune. (laughs) And so I'm just going to rush over and research the best possible poison and get back to you later. You can lose your temper with a gun. You can be fearful with a brick, right? But... You have to think ahead and plan if you're going to be a poisoner. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, But there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Our sound designer is Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.